This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Boston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the importance of exercise during fasting with health and wellness CEO, Greg Lindberg. We'll discover the five pillars of autoimmune health with naturopath Dr. Barb Warger, ND. We'll learn why sitting is the new smoking with Dr. Sender Deutsch, DC. And lastly, we'll find out about challenges faced by black healthcare professionals with Dr. Nick White. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Groundbreaking research published recently in Nature Genetics describes the largest ever study into genetics of random, round-the-clock blood glucose levels. The study, involving almost a half a million people of diverse backgrounds, describes new DNA variants influencing blood sugar levels measured at random. Scientists also revealed for the first time that type 2 diabetes can directly cause lung complications. In the largest ever genetic study exploring how genes affect blood sugar levels and health outcomes, Researchers concluded that lung disorders should be now considered a complication of type 2 diabetes. Millions of North Americans have inflammatory bowel disease, which occurs in one of two forms, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Though the two have similar symptoms, they require different treatment strategies, and tests to distinguish between them are invasive. Currently, distinguishing between the two typically requires invasive procedures such as endoscopy or biopsy. To develop a less uncomfortable option, some researchers are searching for biomarkers in blood or other accessible body fluids. Reporting in American Chemical Society's Journal of Pretomy Research, researchers now show that chains of sugar molecules are tacked onto antibodies differently in patients with the diseases, which could someday lead to simple blood-based diagnostic tests. Researchers, who previously developed the first 3D human cell culture models of Alzheimer's disease that displays two major hallmarks of the condition, the generation of amyloid beta deposits followed by tau tangles, have now used their model to investigate whether the exercise-induced muscle hormone irisin affects amyloid beta pathology. As reported in the journal Neuron, the Massachusetts General Hospital-led team has uncovered promising results suggesting that irisin-based therapies might help combat AD. Physical exercise has been shown to reduce amyloid beta deposits in various mouse models of AD, but the mechanisms involved have remained a mystery. Exercise increases circulating levels of the muscle-derived hormone irisin, which regulates glucose and lipid metabolism in fat tissue and increases energy expenditure by accelerating the browning of white fat tissue. I'll be joined by Greg Lindbergh in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. 
For more information, visit lifelonglabs.com. Greg Lindbergh is a entrepreneur, philanthropist, author, turned wellness advocate. He attended Yale University, where he completed his bachelor's degree in economics in 1993. He's acquired and transformed more than 100 companies that were either failing or underperforming and are now worth billions of dollars. His experiences and challenges as a business leader inspired him to author two books, the first being Failing Early and Failing Often, How to Turn Your Adversity into Advantage, published in 2020, and 633 Days Inside, Lessons on Life and Leadership, published in 2022. For the last few years, his mission has been focused on helping people reach their ultimate potential through wellness, longevity, and leadership housing all of these initiatives under his new brand called Lifelong Labs. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So last time on the show, you kind of threw this out, right? We were talking about fasting, and you were telling me about the exercise that you were doing during fasting, which really surprised me because, you know, in my brain, I'm thinking if you're fasting, it's incredibly difficult to exercise. So I thought I'd, you know, I'd bring you back today and we'd sort of like unpack a lot of that and you can explain how the two are sort of symbiotic and how it helps. Does that sound like a plan? Absolutely. Great plan. Happy to do it. Okay. So how does exercise play a role in your health when you're fasting? It's really, really important. So to get the benefits of fasting, you have to move the body from a glucose metabolism all the way to a triglyceride metabolism where you're actually burning your body fat to get all the cascade of genes that are released that repair your body and make you younger you have to persist all the way through to the triglyceride metabolism you know the body has evolved over a very very long time millions if not hundreds of millions of years to burn glucose so when you burn glucose and you stop burning glucose your liver actually makes glucose for a little bit of time. So it, if you, even if you exercise hard for the first day or two of a fast, you're still burning glucose. I find looking at my own biorhythms, it takes about two days to get through the glucose metabolism all the way to the triglyceride metabolism. And that's with two pretty hefty two-plus-hour workouts. So let's talk about your workouts for a bit, man, because two-hour workouts, that's a lot. And this is coming from somebody who exercises like five times a week on top of walking at least an hour, hour and a half a day. What kind of stuff are you doing? I think the most important thing to exercise is to do something that you enjoy, to be out and about a little bit, and to get some natural sun, some natural photons coming into your body, and to be highly varied in your exercise. Any exercise you do, if you do it over and over again, it's not going to do nearly as much good as changing it up. And it's actually a, a real important interplay between your brain and your body. If you, if you get out and run one day and you swim the next day and you hike the next day and you maybe do the Stairmaster the next day and you lift some weights, change it up dramatically. I try to do something different. Yeah, uh, almost every day to really change it up. Yeah, I do as well. And, and you know, your your body has like muscle memory, right? So exactly. like, you know, like doing arm curls over and over again, first of all, you're only isolating certain muscles, but also your body almost compensates and learns a rhythm that stops it from breaking down the muscle, which is what you really want to do so that it repairs and gets bigger. Exactly. So why is it so important to exercise during fasting though? Well, exercise burns up your sugar in your body quite quickly, especially cardio. 
in the beginning of my fasting routine, I did a lot of weights, and it wasn't burning. I could tell I wasn't getting to that ketogenic triglyceride metabolism fast. It was taking me longer, so I started to do cardio heavy in the first couple of days of exercise. And then there's an, a miraculous thing that happens if you do cardio every day. You start to like it. You get a little addicted to the endorphin rush. For sure. And all the pleasant hormones that exercise produces, and you start to feel better. So I want that feeling again. So you do your exercise again. So cardio is absolutely critical to burn that sugar up. Do you find, like, it's called the runner's high, right? Like, I think that's what you're talking about. Do you find that that high is more necessary or more pronounced through fasting? I'm asking because I don't fast. Like, is there a difference or is it just part of your routine? It's, it's the same. However, it's more important during fasting because fasting, of course, you're starving. Right. And it's very painful to not eat. And the runner's high, the endorphin buzz, whatever you call that exercise feel-good mentality that you get when you exercise, particularly cardio for at least 30 minutes, that covers up the hunger pains. It's amazing. I can, there's two things to get through a fast. Number one, sleep. You're not hungry when you're asleep. Your body has all kinds of programs to shut off the hunger pains while you sleep. And number two, you're not hungry when you're full of endorphins. Your body shuts those off. So I try to sleep and exercise as much as I can to get through it. Okay, so does the body react differently to exercise when you're fasting, is it, or is it the same sort of process? It does react differently. It's much harder to get started. Of course, you don't have that sugar kick. Right. When you're full of sugar, your body has immediate energy to burn. Your, your electron transport chain has that immediate access to glucose. It doesn't have to convert to fat. So you have, it's faster. Sugar is very fast energy. However, once you get started, interestingly enough, very good question, once you get started, three or four days into your fast, you have better physical performance. My absolute physical best performance is three or four days into a fast. Believe it or not, if I was a competitive athlete, I wouldn't eat for four days before an event. Wow. You wouldn't have an off-the-block starting time that was fast, but your endurance is off the charts. My Stairmaster time, just a simple thing like a Stairmaster, I can do maybe 30 minutes at a particular volume level. At four days, I can almost double that. It's just you have an amazing endurance when you're burning your triglycerides. Okay, so as somebody who is, is exercising when they're on an empty stomach, can you sort of go through a little bit of the psychology? Like, how do you push through? How do you push yourself when you're hungry? Because I know I don't feel like working out when I'm hungry or fatigued. You know, it's probably the best time to do it, but psychologically, it's a tough thing to do. It's the absolute hardest part of my week is to get going. And I try to find something pleasant, like, oh, today it's a beautiful day. I can take a little run. And then once you get going and you start to get some endorphins, the hunger goes away, and you start to get the blood flow and you start to get into your exercise. Starting is the hardest part. Once you're 30 minutes into it and uh, you're into it, it's easier to keep going. But I try to do something that's not so difficult, like just sitting in the same treadmill, in the same room, in the same gym, whatever. Change it up and make it interesting, and then challenge yourself intellectually so you don't notice the hunger and the, the physical challenge. I listen to a lot of audiobooks when I work out. For me, I play this little psychological game, which is I work out because I can. Right. Because, you know, right, there's days where you're more motivated than others. Right. For whatever reason, either you have an empty stomach exactly. or you don't or maybe you're fighting a cold or maybe you hurt yourself. And, you know, you're, you've got some muscle tweaks. I know as a certainty and I'm sure you feel the same way after the workouts, 
you're always happy that you've done them, right? Like no matter what, however, however much you don't want to do them before when you're done, you're happy. But it's that little trick that I play on my, on myself. Well, I try and imagine not the moment, but I kind of think forward. How am I going to feel after I work out? And that's usually the thing that gets me going. So I don't know if that helps you, but that's what I do. That's a wonderful trick. Any kind of visualization, any kind of looking forward to an event, uh, I look forward to my feast. I visualize that. Anything you can do to get started and visualize that feeling of peace that comes over after you exercise. Okay, so that's the sh- Yeah, no, it isn't. So that's the short run. Let's talk about motivation over the long run. What's your advice there? I think it's really important to have long-term goals. One of the things that I did is I tested my telomeres five years ago, and I just retested them, and they had increased dramatically in length, which is a clear sign of rewinding the biological clock of the body. And that is an incredible motivator for me in terms of I have a a lot of daily pain. In fact, I have a list. I look at it every morning, and it's called my weekly progress map. And I just go through a list of things that I think are getting better little by little by little. Progress comes in one step at a time in your life, in your business, in your career, your profession, your health. All these things that we go through as humans to progress our lives forward, it's like a baby, your child growing up. They move very, very slow. If you watch how a baby grows and a, and a child grows, it's very slow. But that's how we grow. So we have to think of things in baby steps and then celebrate the small wins as long as we know we're on a progress map towards where we really want to be. And I think the frustrating thing for a lot of people is it's never linear, right? Like, so you can have like great sessions, great weeks, great months, and then inexplicably you can find yourself slipping back and and it's nothing that you've done. It's just reality. And you have to be able to sort of reconcile that, I think. So exactly. I, I know what exercises I like to do. What do you like to do? And, and I'm looking at this in the canvas of your fasting. So what is copacetic with fasting? You know, my favorite exercise is cardio when I feel good at the end of a cardio workout. And I, my challenge is finding enough different cardio that doesn't hurt my knees. And if you run every day, your knees are going to blow out. If you, you know, do Stairmaster, you're going to get too used to that. So yep. finding enough different cardio. So I, I find I've got an elliptical, I've got a bike, I've got a rowing machine, yep. a treadmill, and then exercise. So it's four or five different pieces of equipment, which... I got this little $300 elliptical, and it's great. Yep. And so you can, for fairly inexpensive piece of equipment, you can vary your workout. Yeah, like I have a spin bike, and I have a rowing machine and a treadmill. Because of my knees, I can't do the treadmill so much, but I love the rowing machine. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. I get that, run- I get that runner's high that I can't do anymore because uh, I, I also have a, a partially torn Achilles. So I exercise five times a week and sort of change it up, and that's my schedule because I have to allow for some rest. Is that materially different than what you do under your, your fasting exercise regimen? Jamie, that's a great question. Exercising every day is not the best strategy. You really need to take a day or two off. You're doing absolutely the right thing. I have challenged myself to take a day off, but I've become so addicted to the endorphin rush, I have trouble taking a day off. But it's absolutely better to take a day off, if not two days. Let your body rest and recover and your muscles build. And, you know, when you're talking about two hours, I think you, you threw that number out with your exercise. Are you doing like vigorous cardio for two hours or are you mixing in sort of other stuff like yoga and movement and walking? Or like, like what makes up your two hours? That's a good question. So I try not to do more than half of it as cardio. 
and then the rest will be weights. I'll do planks. I'll do some TRX moves. I'll yep. do sit-ups. So really a highly varied, preferably bodyweight exercise, although sometimes I like to do pick up the, the barbells and those kinds of things. So highly varied weights for the other hour. Okay, so for those who are intrigued by the concept of fasting and exercising, what are reasonable expectations for results? I think a reasonable expectation is you can get off most of your meds, if not all of your meds, within the first year. I mean, that's that's an aggressive goal, but it's absolutely achievable. I was on very heavy-duty Mirapex, which is a kind of a pre-Parkinson's dopamine agonist treatment, and I was off it completely within a year of starting my fasting routine. So it it had completely changed my health outlook and my life within the first year. And realistically, when can you start seeing results? And and I appreciate that's kind of a loaded question because some people are starting from very poor health and some people are average, et cetera. But in your experience, based on what you've seen? It depends. That's a great question. It really depends. If you want to do one traumatic seven-day fast and you're healthy enough to do that, you'll see results at the end of that seven days. A, A friend of mine did uh, a 10-day fast. He oh was, my God. <laughs> um, he had very high blood pressure. He was on very high dosage of uh, blood pressure medicine. He had significant weight to lose, and he chose to do a 10-day fast, and he went from ultra-high blood pressure, being treated by blood pressure medicines, to completely normal blood pressure in one 10-day fast. So it, it can be very dramatic. Okay, so I, I'm going to be candid with you. When I hear something like 10-day fast, my alarm bells go off and the red flags go off, and I want to sort of touch upon safety issues, particularly with respect to like fasting and specifically with exercise during fasting. What are some of your safety protocols? It's very important to stay hydrated, and then towards the end of the fast, if you feel yourself getting dizzy or anything that's a sign of low electrolytes, you should supplement with electrolytes. There's a lot of salts and magnesium and potassium powders you can put in your water to regenerate your electrolytes. Important to consult your physician if you have any health issues that may prevent you from exercising or may prevent you from fasting. It's important to check in with that. Do you advocate getting a personal trainer? I find it much more peaceful to work out alone and let my mind wander and listen to an audio book. But for a lot of people, personal trainers are excellent. They help them establish accountability. It's someone to be there with you and make sure you get it done. Can I add a safety tip of my own? Would you mind? Please. So there's a, there's difference in pain, right? The dull ache that you get from lifting weights is one thing, but I think, you know, any sharp pain, you got to consider, you, you have to stop whatever it is you're doing and deal with that sharp pain, right? That's exactly right. That's an excellent point. And I'm glad you mentioned that. As you feel yourself getting into the exercise, and if there's any pain at all, you got to switch the body part. You're overworking that body part. That body part needs some rest. And you've got to figure out a different exercise. If it's an elbow, then you've got to move to some other part of your body. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. That was Greg Lindberg. We have to take a short break, but we will be right back on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. 
If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Barb Roger is a licensed naturopathic doctor practicing in Toronto. Her clinical focus is in women's health, stress management, and inflammatory conditions. Dr. Barb spends a great deal of time educating individuals on the importance of magnesium and why we all need to add this mineral to our health toolbox. You can find her on Instagram at Dr. Barb Wolger, where she shares a wealth of information about magnesium and other topics. Welcome back, Barb. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you for having me back. So today we're going to talk about immunity and the types of decisions that we can make in order to bolster the immunity and help our health. Does that make sense? Well, the immune system is obviously a very crucial part of our health and autoimmune disease results a lot from immune dysfunction. And so we're seeing a lot more of that happening these days. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something that we should all be aware of. And there's definitely some things we can do. Okay, so let, let's start with diet and mm-hmm. its interaction with the autoimmune system. And in particular, I think you're going to want to focus on inflammation. Right, right. So the foods that we consume obviously play a huge role in how we modulate inflammation in the body. And just a prephrase that inflammation is actually a natural response that can help our bodies fight infection and heal injuries. It's the chronic low-grade inflammation that we're speaking about today that we often see in the development or progression of autoimmune diseases. So we want to really focus on whole foods. We want to focus on foods that are going to provide antioxidants. So foods such as polyphenols and colorful foods, these are going to help fight the inflammation and the what we call reactive oxygen species or free radicals and lean proteins, vegetables, omega-3 fatty acids. We know that there's so much research on them and the anti-inflammatory properties that they can have to balance those immune responses. What we really want to stay away from is the processed foods. A lot of the processed foods contain additives, uh, seed oils, usually all kinds of preservatives and refined sugars. And those kind of trigger or kind of feed that inflammation. And they often exacerbate symptoms. They make things worse. And in some individuals, we kind of have to look at if they've got this gluten dairy sensitivity. And especially in autoimmunity, we have to remember that that might be a component depending upon the autoimmune disease that we're dealing with. With because those two types of foods can also sometimes cause more inflammatory actions in the body and, of course, then lead to more symptoms. There are so many autoimmune diseases, and there's going to be individual protocols for each, and these are just kind of general guidelines that we want to put in place when we're looking at supporting the immune system. 
Okay, I know stress is another factor. How would you suggest people deal with stress and, and mitigating stress? Yeah, stress is obviously a huge trigger for any autoimmune condition. And it's because when we're under chronic stress, cortisol is going to be elevated. And when cortisol is elevated, it causes the immune system to be become dysregulated. It leads to, again, inflammation and, of course, exasperation of symptoms. So we really want to find things that are going to lower that nervous system activity, put us in that rest and digest mode. And so we can do things like mindfulness, meditation. Yoga and Tai Chi have been really researched for autoimmune conditions because of their way of improving flexibility and strength for people, but also the of calming down that nervous system, getting outside, going into nature, creating healthy boundaries. Sometimes, you know, we take on way too much and that really can drive the nervous system. And for someone who has, you know, an autoimmune disease, that is going to be a big part of their life. So, you know, anything really to help reduce that nervous system activation, get you into that rest and digest is going to be a very beneficial thing to do when it comes to immune regulation. Okay. And, you know, we talk about it a lot here on the show, but sleep impacts your overall health too. How does it, how does it come into play in this conversation? Right. And like you said, sleep is definitely the cornerstone of good health and you really can't overstate the importance of it. And it is even more so true with autoimmune conditions. So again, it's during sleep that our body tends to repair and rejuvenate itself. When we get into the deep sleep, the body is able to do a lot of the healing of the brain detoxifies. These things have to, we need deep sleep in order for these things to actually happen. And so making sure that we're getting in that deep sleep, that good sleep is really going to be crucial when it comes to autoimmune. We know that disrupted or inadequate sleep contributes to higher levels of cortisol and then higher levels of immune dysfunction. So, you know, usually my top tips are keeping a consistent sleep schedule, you know, just making sure we're going to bed and getting up around the same time. We really want to be in bed around 10-ish, 11, because we know that the hours before midnight that we get for sleep are going to be worth more than the hours we get after midnight. So really making an effort to get to bed around that 10 p.m., and that also works with our circadian rhythm. And then just creating a, a good sleep hygiene protocol that you can put into place that you can do about a half an hour before going to bed. And again, this is where you can kind of incorporate some of the stress-reducing modalities we talked about, whether it's mindfulness, meditation, just to kind of prepare the body to get into a good restful sleep. So I advocate for exercise all the time for a myriad of reasons. You know, it clears my mind, uh, you know, it, it helps with all sorts of things like balance. But there's also some connection between exercise and autoimmune. Can you elaborate on that? Right. And you're right. Regular physical activity is like super great for us and it comes with so many health benefits. But we have to be a little bit careful when we're dealing with autoimmune conditions when we do exercise. Now, exercise is great, but it's good that we have to, we have to kind of strike a balance as to 
how much exercise and the intensity of that exercise, because that could definitely lead to immune suppression in autoimmune conditions. And that's not entirely what we want. So we want to make sure that there's enough rest and recovery between workouts. So listening to the body, avoiding, you know, pushing through exercise or intensities is going to be really, really important because if we stress the immune system, if we stress the body again, we're going through that whole system of cortisol elevation, inflammation, and all of those things. So really, when we're looking at autoimmune diseases, we like to engage in moderate intensity exercises, brisk walking, swimming, cycling. As I mentioned, the yoga and Tai Chi are fabulous, have a ton of research behind them for a lot of the autoimmune conditions. And this just helps the individual still get the benefit of exercise, but it allows for the body not to be overtaxed and the immune system to actually function adequately. Okay. And number five is kind of like a hot button topic right now. There's a lot of research that's just come out on the importance of the gut microbiome. How does it play into this whole issue of autoimmune? Yeah, we can't talk about autoimmune disease without actually talking about the gut because as we know, the gut microbiome, it plays a role in everything when it comes to health and disease. And so we know that the gut microbiome influences immune function 70 to 80% of our immune system is in the gut. We know that it also plays a role in inflammation, in mental well-being. And so we need to really look at making sure that we're getting in the right components for our gut microbiome so that we can maintain a balanced and diverse gut microbiome. And so here we really want to be looking at fiber-rich foods, whole grains, legumes, we know that fiber is going to support the growth of these beneficial gut bacteria that do so much for us, such as immune function, inflammation, and those kinds of things. Probiotic-rich foods, right? We often just say, oh, let's just take a probiotic, but the problem with that is we don't get all the bacteria from a probiotic. There are probiotics that we get from foods that we don't get in a supplement. And so including fermented foods like yogurt and kefir and sauerkraut, kimchi, those kinds of foods are going to introduce new beneficial bacteria into the gut, uh, which is really obviously very beneficial when we come to supporting the immune system and inflammation. And then, of course, we have to feed those probiotics, and we feed them with the prebiotics. So, you know, garlic, onions, leeks, asparagus, those kinds of prebiotics are going to provide that nourishment for those gut bacteria. And then finally, as I've mentioned in the diet section, we need those antioxidants and polyphenols. And we know that they play such a crucial role in in reducing that auto oxidative stress and inflammation, but we also know that they support our gut bacteria, they support our gut lining, and they just create an environment where our body is able to function in a way that supports our immune system and, of course, reduces inflammation, which are two big things when we're looking at autoimmunity. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What do you want to discuss the next time you're on? I would love to get into improving our vagal tone and how that plays a role in our health. 
Fantastic. That was Dr. Barb Warger. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the perils of sitting on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. For more information, visit LifelongLabs.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Sender Deutsch is the co-founder and clinic director of Shape Health and Wellness Centers in Toronto, a celebrity sports therapist and chiropractor. He has also developed a unique individualized concept of integrated therapy and training, which combines the most effective evidence-based treatment modalities and exercise techniques to create a personalized treatment plan just for you. The concept is on the cutting edge of physical therapy and personal fitness. Under Sender's direction, Shape has assembled an unparalleled team of healthcare providers and conditioning specialists to implement individualized health and fitness programs, ensuring that you achieve your goals. For more information, you can visit shapetoronto.com. Welcome back to the show, Sender. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me again. Had a blast the first time. Yeah. So today, we're going to talk about sitting and in particular, why sitting is so very bad for you. So why is it, Sender? Why is it no good? Well, I always like to say that motion is motion and our bodies respond best to movement. And ultimately, when you sit for long periods of time, you increase your risk of metabolic syndrome and various health risks of gaining weight, hypertension, high blood pressure, increased cholesterol, triglycerides, along with the fact that since COVID, you know, in the profession that I'm in with treating people and sports injuries, pain, and we've seen an increase as a result of people sitting more at their desks. Are people actually sitting more? I mean, like, uh, I was a lawyer for 20 years before I do what I do now, and I was sitting at a desk, and, you know, lots of people I know sit at desks. Are we actually sitting around more, or are we just learning more about the dangers of sitting around? Probably a combination of both. I think we're sitting more in the sense that, you know, back in the day, people would also get up, go to the fax machine. You'd get up, uh, maybe meet some colleagues, for a meeting, maybe you'd walk to the building next door to meet some other uh, lawyers that uh, are in your profession for a meeting. And so we're seeing less of that where now you can do everything from your your computer, from email to virtual conferences and, and so forth. Even back in the day, people were probably traveling more, moving more and taking breaks. You know, when people sit or are doing the same task for longer than 20 minutes at a time without taking a break, they increase their risk of repetitive strain injury. Okay, so we've established why sitting is so bad. What are some of the things that we can do to, to mitigate against the evils of sitting? You know, something simple, just setting a timer to go off every 15, 20 minutes and just taking even like a 10-second break to kind of reset where you reach up for the ceiling 
the sky, you know, do a little bit of meditation, maybe a couple lunges, just open up your body, you know, reach back, do the opposite motion of, of that you're in in terms of that rounded posture and position from sitting all day long. And, you know, you, you talk about movement, and I'm a huge advocate of movement and exercise, but I think people don't realize there are tons of collateral benefits to actually moving and walking and, and doing all sorts of different training. Can you explain what those are? Yeah, like walking is probably the most researched exercise because there's, you know, no barrier to entry for anyone. So ultimately, you know, walking 30 minutes a day, getting in your 150 minutes of exercise per week are the general guidelines that various health industries recommend in terms of of preventing various diseases and risk factors from developing. Right. And, And, you know, we say here, the biggest step you can take is from doing nothing to doing something, right? Like at some point there's diminishing returns. Like I'm a crazy workout person and I have grown to appreciate there's only so much you can do. But the huge step is actually getting your ass off off the couch, right? Isn't it? Exactly. Well said. That's the most important. Just, you know, if you're going from zero to, you know, just doing 10 minutes a day is is a great way to start. And even just going for a, a walk, like we discussed, even just being able to do, you know, some body weight squats, lunges, push-ups, you can do so much in the comforts of your own home, your, your office, you know, I have many patients, clients, I often even do virtual consultations with to teach them how to exercise and work out in the confines of their office space. So in addition to sitting, I'm what's known as a tremendous slouch, which is like a reference to an old movie. And, you know, I have horrible posture and I know that it's impacting my health. Maybe you can you elaborate on how poor posture sort of impacts our more generalized health? Yeah, most definitely. It's a, it's a great point, you know, being more aware in terms of proper spinal alignment, standing straight up to prevent headaches, neck pain. Uh, shoulder pain, low back pain, you know, over 80% of the population will suffer from neck and low back pain and increased sitting and poor posture ultimately contribute to that because of the increased stresses on those muscles, nerves, as a result of kind of being slouched forward, you know, the spine and the spinal cord are under constant tension as a result, contributing to one's pain and, and dysfunction. My understanding is the tremendous technology that everybody's using is actually further impacting this issue of bad posture. And I I think there's something called like the cell phone slouch. And, you know, I'm guilty of it, right? Like you don't look forward when you look at your phone. Like nobody brings it to eye level. You kind of look down. And as we spend more time on our phones, we're, we're sort of leaning forward and our necks are sort of tilting forward. And that's affecting our posture and, and having all those effects, isn't it? Exactly. You know, it's contributing to the increase in terms of uh, headaches, migraines that uh, people are suffering from as a result of that increased tension on those muscles in the neck and those nerves that come out and, you know, ultimately innervate, you know, our head, neck and face area that, that cause these headaches that a lot of people are suffering from and the increase, you know, of understanding and awareness now on, you know, pain medications and the addictions to that as a result of, you know, poor posture and, and the pain that people are you know, suffering as a result. Okay, so a lot of the sitting that we are doing, aside from like, you know, me being a couch potato and watching TV at night, is because, you know, we work at desk jobs, right? And and so work is the key here. So how do employers come into this? What can the employers do to help us workers avoid the issue of sitting too long? Ultimately, it's basically really promoting physical exercise activity, taking breaks in the workplace, maybe having some lunch and learns that teach 
their staff how to ultimately take some movements uh, and incorporate them throughout the day, you know, reminding their employees and staff to take breaks every 20 minutes, change positions, you know, ultimately maybe having some lunch and learns where you're going outside for a walk, you know, scheduling uh, walking meetings instead of virtuals. Where do you stand on standing desks? Oh, I love standing desks. I'm using one right now. Uh, It's my favorite. And, you know, ultimately it keeps you moving because you're constantly changing positions and, you know, you can ultimately stretch while you're, you're doing your work at the same time. And a few years ago, it was all the rage. I'm not sure if it is now, but there used to be these big, huge inflatable balls that people would sit on as opposed yeah. to sitting in chairs because it, it kind of requires you to use your small muscles to, to sit properly. What, what do you think about those? All these are basically like tools that allow you to change positions throughout the day. So that, that's the most important part. There's a phenomenon called creep, and ultimately creep is when, you know, tension sets in and ligaments and tendons start to deform as a result of not moving properly or changing positions often enough. So a standing workstation, a stability ball, these are all tools that allow us to change positions versus, you know, just being in a static chair where you begin to slouch like we were discussing before. Okay, so we started off this interview by saying, you know, I think we said the, the concept is sitting is the new smoking, right? So it, it, it's, the big, it's the big bad wolf, right? We should all not be sitting around. But are there any misconceptions or myths surrounding this concept? Well, definitely in the sense that, you know, it's not going to have the same type of effects in terms of cancer-causing uh, effects that smoking does. But it, it, it's used to ultimately generate awareness of how bad sitting is in terms of the various cardiovascular issues we discussed. But uh, the health issues associated with smoking, you know, certainly outweigh those of of sitting. But, uh, you know, the prominence here is to gain more awareness that uh, we want to move more as a society. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. That was Dr. Sender Deutsch. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss black healthcare professionals on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. Proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Nick White, MD, is a co-founder of BHPN and a practicing family doctor specializing in aesthetic and bariatric medicine. Driven by his observations of a lack of black doctors in Ontario and a need for healthcare professionals to understand business and entrepreneurship, he played a pivotal role in conceiving BHPN. 
As the managing director, Dr. White oversees the organization's operations and guides it towards achieving its goals of increasing the representation of black healthcare providers and entrepreneurs. Welcome to the show, Dr. White. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a bit about the Black Healthcare Professionals Network, which I've called BHPN? Yeah, great. So we are an organization that's been around for about two years now, and our mission is to help locate and identify Black healthcare professionals from different sectors across Ontario. We help them by providing them with free business advisory services. So if they're interested in entrepreneurship or learning more about how they can grow and develop their practice, that's something we provide. We also help by providing them with mentorship opportunities as well as networking events. And more recently, we've launched our directory, which is free tool, a free tool for the public to access. And the goal behind that is for Canadians to be able to find and locate black healthcare professionals from any sector based on their geographical location, their uh, area of specialization, language, etc. So we want to increase access to care for Canadians. Okay, so... I guess this sort of begets the question, you know, why is this necessary? Like, what are some of the challenges that black health professionals are facing in Canada? Well, I think all healthcare professionals realize at some stage, once they complete their training and their education, that there's a lot of information that they didn't receive about things like business, finance, uh, marketing, tax planning, etc., And often they're left scrambling on their own to try to figure out how to stay afloat or how to improve their own financial situation or how to improve their business or their clinic. And so that was something I noticed was a gap through my training, and I had to spend a lot of time and and make a lot of mistakes in order to kind of learn how to navigate through the challenges that can arise. And so we provide that education and that support for the black healthcare professionals, because often they may not have any mentorship. They may be the first person in their family who's who's entered into a profession. And so that helps to uh, alleviate those that stress and those challenges. And then um, in addition, we just find that there is, it's really challenging to identify a provider based on their, their uh, racial identity, because you can't clearly search on the current directories that exist out there. So for physicians and and other professionals, you can't necessarily know based on their name or their language. And that's a particular problem for for Black Canadians to find them. So this is a way for us to be able to do that and provide that access. You know, in in speaking with your education, so I was actually, I was a lawyer and I practiced for 20 years and law school is the same way. They taught you how to think like a lawyer, but they didn't actually teach you like the ins and outs of the business of practicing law. And and the vast majority of lawyers are sole practitioners or small firm lawyers. And so, you know, keeping your book straight, marketing, you know, liaising with clients were things that you kind of had to learn either through osmosis or having a good mentor. Otherwise, you know, you just didn't know those sorts of things. So you also touched upon a point where black Canadians, you know, are having difficulty accessing black medical practitioners. Why is that relevant? Great question. It is relevant because there's certain scenarios where 
black Canadian might benefit from having a provider that looks like them or comes from a similar background, culture, or identity. And I can give you some specific examples. We saw that quite a bit during COVID that there was uh, higher rates of COVID in the black community, poorer outcomes, and generally less trust in the system. And a lot of that was due to, you know, patient education was a key thing. And so if a patient doesn't necessarily trust the provider, they're less likely to follow the recommendations. And so there are public health applications where we know that certain communities would like to have a provider delivering that information from a provider that comes from that community or that understands those cultural challenges and differences. So that's one example. Another good example would be with mental health counseling. Often black Canadians face certain challenges that may not occur in other groups, such as feeling like they've been discriminated against or experiencing anti-black racism. And when a provider is, is black, they might understand that. They might better connect with the patient and therefore the services might be more effective. Other examples would be things like in dermatology, there's conditions that really only show up in black patients or in obstetrics when black patients are pregnant and they're trying to navigate the challenges. Uh, They're at higher risk for certain uh, medical conditions like diabetes and pregnancy, high blood pressure and pregnancy. And so black providers are more likely to identify those conditions and uh, prevent them or treat them. And so it is important. It's similar to if your doctor speaks your language. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's barriers that can occur in the communication, and it's more likely that you won't have those types of barriers and that the outcomes will improve when a provider is from a similar ethnic background as well. Okay, so maybe you could explain how the directory works then, like from a consumer perspective. Yeah, so it's a pretty simple tool Through our website, bhpn.ca, anyone can go onto the website and click on the directory, and then it allows you to search based on a few criteria. So one is your geographical location. Two is also the type of provider you're looking for, whether it's a dentist, whether it's a cardiologist, et cetera. Uh, So you you can quickly put in some search criteria, and it'll populate a list of black providers in your area. And from there, you can click on their bio, you can get information about their, their type of practice, uh, all of their contact information, and even book or request to book an appointment through, through the, uh, the website directly. And so let, let's reverse engineer a bit. From a practitioner perspective, how does it work and, and, and what are the benefits to the practitioners? Yeah, from a practitioner standpoint, it's, it's similar. You, you're going to create a profile on the uh, directory. And there you can list your contact information, whether it's your, you know, your clinic and, and your website, things of that nature. You can upload a, a profile photo. And that allows you to be able to easily recruit new patients. There are some types, there are certain practitioners that actively are looking to bring on new patients. And examples would be physiotherapists, dentists, etc., because they're operating maybe out of an OHIP system. We found that other types of providers may be less inclined because maybe their practice is full. So certain, we know there's a shortage of family doctors, so that's been a challenge to find family doctors that are taking on patients. But if they are, they have that option. 
And so it's up to the providers to decide whether or not they want to be listed. And certainly they have the option of uh, taking on patients. And we think visibility is important too. Just having your profile out there does show that there are quite a few black providers in Ontario and it helps to increase visibility and show shine a positive light on the black community as a whole that we are in fact professionals and we are in fact well trained and highly skilled and so that there's also a benefit for that from that standpoint too so i think you said earlier the directory is is relatively new you know end game perfect world scenario you know what are, what are the goals that you have for the directory my goal would be that it's a robust directory that you can find people in different uh, specializations, different sectors of the healthcare system. So it is important to me that it's not just one type of provider. It's not just doctors. It's, it's nurses. It's physiotherapists. It's you name it. You can find someone. It's also important that it is uh, populated from a geographical standpoint. So yeah. If you live in Barrie or if you live in uh, North Bay, you can also find someone within a reasonable uh, distance from you. And I also think that it would be great. Uh, it serves as a great model for other communities, too. So this, there's no reason that this couldn't exist for other uh, culture, culture groups in Canada, such as, you know, Chinese Canadians or Jewish Canadians, etc. I think it would be helpful to also know you know the cultural background or the ethnic background of providers because for some people that is important so hopefully this can become a a, a greater or bigger uh, project in the future but for now we're focused on on using the black community as a model for this and there's no reason why it can't be expanded from there fantastic if a listener were inclined to look for the directory or, or even a practitioner who might want to join where should they go so our website is bhpn.ca. You can easily go onto the website, and then there is the option of joining the directory or uh, using the directory by just clicking on the directory button. And on our page, you'll also find out more about our organization. You can join the network if you are a black healthcare professional, and then you get access to some of the other benefits that I talked about, like the business advisory services, the mentorship program, and our events. So it's really easy. It's just bhpn.ca. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Greg Lindbergh, Dr. Barb Rorger, ND, Dr. Sender Deutsch, DC, and Dr. Nick White. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air. 
and The Garden Show.